Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Gabriel Rains was a Confederate general who ran their torpedo service during the Civil War. He's considered by some to be a father of modern coastal defense. His torpedoes, we call them sea mines today, were what Union Admiral David Farragut was damning when he ordered his fleet full speed ahead in the 1864 Battle of Mobile Bay. Rains was one of the few, if not the only, Confederate officer to finagle a pension of sorts out of the federal government after the war. No, it was not for his service in coastal defense and sea land mine technology and employment in the Civil War. Rather, it was for taking wounds in the Second Seminole War. An infantry officer by branch, the 1827 U.S. Military Academy graduate had a sideline tinkering with explosives. He employed landmines around forts the Army was evacuating in Florida and he scored a few hits on curious Seminoles attempting to enter and evacuated Fort's walls. He sustained serious wounds in one skirmish between his troops and the Seminole. It was for these wounds that Rains requested compensation in the 1870s. Chris Kimball, who devoted a chapter to Rains in his Alachua Ambush Collection, returns to discuss and describe Rains' impact as an officer in two armies and two wars. Chris Kimball, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. I'm glad to be back. Thank you. Chris, who was Gabriel Rains, and what was the nickname that people affixed to him and his brother? Gabriel Rains and his brother, George Washington Rains, are known as the Bomb Brothers. They developed mines, or what they called torpedoes, during the Civil War, but Gabriel Rains was actually testing those devices and using them in combat in the Second Seminole War back in 1840, and those turned into one of the bases of the coastal defense that we used to mine or put the mines in the water guarding the coastal forts along the Gulf and Atlantic coast. Rains had a reputation as someone who tinkered with munitions, but it wasn't that which gave him the general officer commission in the Confederate Army. He didn't start out in charge of the torpedoes, but he was wounded in the Battle of Seven Pines, so they basically gave him a death job in charge of conscription and the Torpedo Bureau to experiment with these devices. Of course, he didn't do anything on conscription, but he experimented with the torpedoes, and the Confederacy was getting overwhelmed by the Union, so they needed these devices to build a wall or a fortress unmanned around certain positions, fortifications, and the effect on the troops, they figured, was so terrible that they didn't like the results, but generally said, well, we'll use them in the water to mine the river going up to Richmond and also mine the main seaports to keep the Union ships out of the seaports for Charleston, Savannah, Mobile, and a few other places. 
Rain served more than three decades as a U.S. Army officer, and on the eve of the Civil War, didn't seem like he was going to give that up anytime soon. The Vermont newspaper in April 1861 mentioned that he was in town, he was recruiting at the time, and it said even though a loyal Southerner, he'll be a patriot and fight for the country that he served in to the last drop of blood. And that was quoted in the newspaper. And then, of course, a few weeks later, he resigned and joined the Confederacy. So that's kind of an interesting story. So Reigns has these torpedo skills, but the Confederacy didn't seem much interested in it when he came to join them. Well, initially, they weren't interested in his torpedoes because they didn't consider it important. They considered it kind of experimental technology and did not realize the results that we'll get. He was not able to put those forward until later on when he had contacts in the Confederate government that was able to persuade them on the, on the viability of the torpedoes. The necessities of war changed that. Well, it was the results of the devices that they saw at uh, Fredericksburg and the, seeing how they would uh, stop the advance of the Union troops and prevent them from crossing into the Confederate areas. Once they had seen that, it made the upper echelon uh, realize that the torpedoes were viable devices to be used in the war. All right, Chris, we've established Rain's street cred as a Confederate officer in the torpedo service during the American Civil War. Let's take a step back to the Second Seminole War and his service there. Okay, in 1840, Gabriel Rains' company had been assigned to Fort King, so he was garrison commander at Fort King, and the Seminoles kept picking off the soldiers. There was a couple sentries that were guarding the fort at night that they were shot and killed. There was two other soldiers that were guarding the herd of cattle that the fort had, and Gabriel Rains' company were going out to pick up the pontoon bridge on the Okawaha River, and right in front of his company, the Seminoles attacked the cattle herders a few hundred yards away and killed them, and by the time their soldiers got there, they had run off and gone. So the company on the fort, they're very small at this point, but they send a detachment out hunting for the Seminoles, and they do a campaign south of the fort and find a Seminole encampment with 16 pack horses that they capture and the Indians disappear in the hammock. They capture one woman and bring her back to the fort, Fort King in chains. So the army has significant attack against the Seminole and the Seminoles probably wanted revenge because they know where the soldiers came from. They could easily follow the hoof prints and footprints back to Fort King. So what actions did Grains take at this point? Gabriel Reigns, after his soldiers were attacked at Fort King, he set up about a mile and a half away from the fort what he called an engine of destruction. An explosive shell was a wire that would fire off firing mechanism that would be triggered by whatever he would put on top. So he left a bloody shirt of the soldier the Indians had killed on top of the device and waited. And now at this point, Gabriel Reigns' brother was not yet in the Army, he had not yet finished West Point. His brother George was in West Point. He wasn't in the picture yet. Reigns and the soldiers at the Fort King, one night they heard the explosive device go off and they rushed out. It was at sundown and they didn't find any Indians and it started to rain. So they reset the device, probably a box or some other similar contraption. And then the following night at the same time, they heard it explode 
And then the next day, Rains and his soldiers went out to find the Indians. So it was Captain Rains and 16 soldiers was the only disposable force he had. And they entered the hammock and were looking around. And a couple bloodhounds that they had with them started to bark. And Captain Rains asked, what are they finding? What do they see? And one of the soldiers said, oh, that's just some rabbits or something. And then they find out that the Indians are hiding in the hammock. And that's what the dogs were barking at, not rabbits. And so somebody yells, Indians. And it's at first like a random shootout, but Reigns takes command, tells the soldiers to take to the trees and circle about and defend themselves. But they quickly realize that they're outnumbered. You have 17 soldiers and about 100 Indians that are Seminole warriors. So Gaines has to fight real hard hand-to-hand combat and eventually does a bayonet charge through the Seminole force. The Seminole leader is shot and killed, and the warriors abruptly back off at that point. And that gives the soldiers a chance, and they run off to Fort King. Gabriel Reigns is wounded, shot in the lung at that point. But the soldiers make it back to Fort King, and some of the Indians follow. But Lieutenant Scott at Fort King starts firing off an artillery piece to keep him away. Two of these soldiers with Gabriel Reigns got separated and were hiding in the hammock. And they count, as the warriors are leaving, they count 93 Seminole warriors, about 15 or 20 women, and four black Seminoles. So that's a pretty significant number. Gaines was outnumbered about five to one, at least. I believe that he used by-the-book infantry tactics that saved his command from getting totally wiped out like Major Day. What other types of munition devices did Gabriel Rains produce? He was a, I guess you could call him a, a tinkerer. He also developed a, a device for setting off, I guess, explosive cap from seeing a design from Samuel Colt on his pistol. So he experimented with several things. Mines or torpedoes were just one of them. In the Second Seminole War, Range was kind of alone in coming up with these mines. Yes, he was the only one using that, although there was a lot of technical advances during the Seminole War. Not so much as official Army testing program, but there's a lot of devices being tested out. For example, the pontoon bridge mentioned previously that Gabriel Reigns was actually picking up from the crossing on the Okawaha River. That was developed by Colonel John Lane, who had died during the war, and that was new technology. Also, you have the Colt repeating rifle that was tested down at Fort Jupiter in 1838. And uh, that was a civilian innovation that he just got people to promote it for the Army. He would hand out as a gift to like Colonel Hardy a repeating rifle. And the original one that was tested was the civilian model with all the gilding and decorations on it. Colonel Harney said, well, I'd like this for my dragoons, but we'll have to adapt this as a soldier's weapon and not so much a fancy hunting (laughs) gun. Gaines didn't craft these inventions just for his own use. He did go to Washington to pitch this to uh, leaders there. What happened? Right. When Reigns was recuperating from his injuries, he took a trip to Washington and he saw Colt demonstrating his repeating rifle. And Gaines wrote to the Secretary of War to try to promote that as to become the issue weapon of the infantry soldiers. But at that time, it was not adopted because the Army was already undertaking that with tests to replace the old 1816 Springfield one-shot flintlock musket at that point. So that was just one of the devices the Army was currently reviewing. Besides his skill and inventiveness, what do you attribute Gaines' success with these devices to? 
I think is a natural curiosity, and he was also very high up in his class in West Point, showing that he was very smart. He was 13th in his graduating class. He was a definitely intelligent person who had very curiosity about mechanics and operating machines. He was promoted to captain at the beginning of the Seminole War. What was Rain's military background like before the Seminole War? Captain Marines, he graduated in 1827 from West Point, and he was assigned mostly out in Oklahoma, Fort Gibson, out west around there, Indian Territory at the time. He made a few trips to the east, for example, uh, Newport, Kentucky, which was a big recruiting center at the time across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. But most of his 12 years before coming to Florida was around Oklahoma. So then he was in the Second Seminole War until he was injured. I understand Rain's unit had not had much action for a long time prior to the engagement at Fort King when he employed these devices. Battle at Fort King that Gabriel Rains was involved in was the first battle of the regiment in 23 years since the first Seminole War in 1817. So he had not had the opportunity to be in combat for the first 12 years of his commission. He may have been experimenting with the mines or torpedoes, but he really didn't have any chance to deploy them until the Seminole War when he was actively fighting against the Seminole warriors. He didn't recuperate in Florida from his wounds, though, correct? Spent a year in Louisiana recuperating during a yellow fever epidemic. So I don't know if that's the best place to recuperate at. Came back to Florida, and as soon as he came back to Florida a few months later, the regiment was removed from Florida and sent out west, and he went back to Fort Pike, Louisiana, where he had just come from. <laughs> spent some time out there and then went back out west to Fort Gibson and was in the Mexican War. Why didn't landmines gain wider use during the Second Seminole War after Rains introduced them? Because once Rains had been wounded and was removed out from Florida, there was no one else using the mine technology at that point. His company, Company A, 7th Infantry, after the battle, they were removed from Fort King because so many of the soldiers had been wounded and could no longer port and do field operations. They were replaced by the 2nd Dragoons at that point. The garrison was replaced at Fort King. He had several very good, viable ideas, but the wheels of government moved slowly. Pretty much the government didn't adopt any of it until the Confederacy in the Civil War, so it was basically experimenting at that time. After the Civil War, when the government had seen the effects of the mines or torpedoes, the ships that were sunk and realized that could be used as a big part of the coastal defense, it was adopted as a part of the coastal defense system. He was still writing technical manuals in the 1870s when he was in the 70s himself. And so the government realized the important technological achievement that he had done. His brother had not yet graduated from West Point and joined the regular army. What was his brother's area of expertise as part of what became known as the Bomb Brothers? George Washington Raines became an expert in chemistry. He graduated from West Point in 1842, but he only stayed in the army about nine years after the Mexican War. He resigned and went into working for a big chemical corporation in the United States. So he was more into tinkering of the chemical compounds, explosives, 
that's what he did for the Confederacy. As for Gabriel Rains, what do we know about his career and his mine employment after the Second Seminole War? Yes, there's really not too much documentation of what he did between the Seminole War and Civil War. His role in the Mexican War does not seem to be very large. He had more of a role out west in Oregon and Washington in the 1850s, but that was dealing with the natives out west, but that was not so much in conflict or battle. And then, as you mentioned, he resigned his commission in the American Army as the Civil War broke out. This is a big deal since they didn't have retirement pensions back then. The Army at that point really didn't have pensions for just years in service. They did have pensions for widows and orphans. They were still debating it in Congress. In fact, at the time of his battle in 1840 near Fort King, the government was still debating whether to give a widow's pension to Major Dade's widow, Amanda Dade, and had not yet given her a pension and finally did. I believe it was something like $5 a month. So the government was not big on pensions at this point, unless he had been disabled in service. After the Civil War, Gabriel Rains, his injuries and wounds are causing a lot of problems with him. He's writing that, you know, I'm unable to work and destitute. So he's looking for a pension. He writes for the War Department, the Commissioner of Pensions. At first, the government just ignores him because he's kind of a washed-up brigadier general from the Confederacy. But he has enough supporters and contacts in Washington and contacts a General James Hardy in Washington who promotes his cause on getting a pension. He does a very unique thing. He says he wants a pension for wounds received that nearly killed him, not during the Civil War, but during the battle at Fort King back in 1840. So it's his service with the United States government, not with the Confederacy. At first, he hit a brick wall, and the commissioner and pension said, we don't have any record of you uh, being wounded in battle, which was ludicrous at this point, because the Army's own records with Colonel Eaton, who developed a list of battles and casualties, killed and wounded, specifically mentions rain, and that was done in the 1850s. It was in the newspapers, the Army-Navy Chronicle, so it's very well known, even on the post returns. <laughs> so uh, who was ever investigating that pension wasn't really doing much homework. Eventually, he did have the paperwork and had the old medical reports that he was examined when he was at Fort Pike back in 1841. He eventually did get what we would consider a pension at that point. In 1877, he was given a job with the quartermaster, Charleston, South Carolina. And at that point, that's as close to a pension as anyone would get, kind of a side job. The government's not handing out pensions to Civil War veterans at this point in 1877, certainly not to a former Brigadier General from the Confederacy, but the government would start handing out the Civil War pensions in the 1880s after Reigns had passed away, and it would be sent out from the individual states, not so much from the federal government, but was very unique and shows that the government thought that his technical expertise was very important, <laughs> that they would even consider him for this. The Confederate Civil War pensions in the state of Florida were developed in the 1890s when they decided that all the veterans are getting old and feeble and passing away. That's when everybody thought they should probably do something about it. After the war, he retired around Charleston, South Carolina, and then moved to Aiken, South Carolina, which is in western South Carolina, and that's where he's buried. He died in 1881.
He didn't get much of a pension, but he did go down in history as they named his device after him. It was uh, pretty much known as the Rains Mine. It was like a cylinder or barrel, watertight, gunpowder gas, and had a lever that when the ship would drag the chain or bump into it, it would push this button or lever on the device that would fall down on a firing bin or a firing mechanism in the device. It was a very simple design, but what's important that was watertight. Even a lot of the ones in for example, in the Battle of Mobile Bay, were determined about half of those had eventually leaked out, probably because they had been in the water for a long time. So the ship would actually drag them along until they would detonate. So they do actually move, but not under their own power by the uh, power of their target. And the devices, as time went on, they were more fixed to a an anchor or a buoy and, and not on the chains. These were key features at the Battle of Mobile Bay in 1864, right? Right. The Battle of Mobile Bay, where the Union fleet had to enter a very narrow ship channel, and there was the torpedoes or mines on either side. And one of the ships, the USS Tecumseh, veered off course and hit the mine and sank. And, of course, there's the, quote, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. When I worked at Fort Morgan, there's some doubt whether Admiral Farragut actually said that. He didn't live long after the war and never disputed what was said, never commented on anything. And it's rumored that it may have been said by the captain, Captain Craven of the USS Tecumseh that got sunk by the torpedo. We were thinking, damn, torpedoes full speed ahead. What was this torpedo made of and how was it constructed? Those very simple device, a gunpowder cask with a firing pin or a firing cap that was activated, which I think was probably a success at that point. The simpler it is, the more effective sometimes. Why were rain sea mines pioneering in the art of coastal defense? But it set the precedent for establishing a new method of coastal defense that was very effective at that point. That's the sea-based torpedo or mine. What were the landmines comprised of? did some landmines and buried them, especially around Fredericksburg, and to the deadly effect. And the general officers on the Union Confederate side were a bit horrified at the grisly effects that they had done against the Union troops. Even some of the Confederate generals wanted to discourage their use. Robert E. Lee, when he came in charge of the Army in Northern Virginia, he said, okay, you can use explosive devices, but to guard the waterways and harbors like the river approach to Richmond and also the harbor defense in Charleston and Mobile, Savannah, and a few other places. They thought it was barbaric that if you're fighting an enemy, you should do it face-to-face -face and not kill them from a distance. Uh, but they soon had changed their mind when the Confederacy was outnumbered and outgunned and being overwhelmed at that point. There is a paradox, after all, between the gruesome weapons that people design and innovative insights gained from constructing them. We talk about these terrible weapons. They were developed by real innovative people that advanced the technology that would change the world and warfare from what we knew from then to now. He had a big impact on changing the warfare. Uh, from what we see, from what was done, it was a big technological leap. Reigns devised it, of course. But what was his position on the humane moral use of it? 
Gabler Rains, he said that, yes, the mines were torpedoes. They are a terrible thing, but it was his wish that it would make people realize that war was so terrible that with these devices, they would hope that they would never have to be used again. So I think we've heard that thinking before, that the technology and devices are so terrible that it's going to end all war. It's not as if the Army didn't have some gruesome weapons and munitions before Reigns devised these mines or torpedoes. Right. Well, the uh, Army did have exploding shells that they fired from cannons that had a fuse, and they had developed percussion caps at this point. So the technology was out there. He was just putting it together to create a new weapon. We should also remember, these are mostly defensive weapons that he has. And that's true going all the way back to his time at Fort King. Yes, that's right. In uh, Fort King, he did it mainly as a reaction for the Seminoles that kept doing the hit-and-run tactics against his infantry soldiers. Reigns did pitch this to the government, but apparently his mines didn't take on after the Seminole War was concluded. Why do you think this was? Uh... The Army hadn't adopted it because the government to adopt a weapon system would have to have a board of inquiry, and he didn't get the chance to have the Army do that yet. They were more interested in updating the firearm, and they even failed at that at that point. The Springfield musket was converted to percussion cap at the end of the Mexican War, and still that was the main armament at the beginning of the Civil War for the Union. So uh, the Union in the Civil War still had firearm technology that was at least 100 years old at that point, even though it was updated with percussion caps. Another example of that is the Gatling gun. At first, the, the Army wasn't interested in the Gatling gun, and it was originally adopted by the Navy for use on ships. Once the Army saw the destruction that it could do, then they adopted the Gatling gun for their field units after the Civil War. The Army's always slow to change its weapons and tactics, has to go through a board of inquiry. And that's what it was with Gabriel Reigns' torpedoes, the adoption of a new musket after the Mexican War. Really what brings a change in the technology and innovation is war itself. In the Mexican War, the American Army really advanced in artillery. In the Civil War, the American Army advanced even more in artillery and also in firearm mechanized machinery. The boats becoming engine-powered made the brick fortifications obsolete when the ships wouldn't be subject to the winds and have to tack around. That They could start the engines and just run past the fortifications. What is Rain's legacy for these munitions? Because of his mine technology that Gabriel Rains invented, it became a standard part of coastal defense, which became the main military doctrine of the United States for defense. They developed the Endicott system of coastal fortifications and disappearing guns, and part of that was to mine the entrance of harbors. For example, I worked at Fort Morgan that it had a uh, case made in the fort that they would store the mines and became part of the coastal defense up through World War War II until fortifications pretty became obsolete because we had airplanes that could fly around them and not so much uh, stuck to the ground. So became part of the military defense for 100 years after Reigns was testing them out. What made Reigns' mines or torpedoes the standard that nations use throughout the world? 
Right. They realized all of a sudden that warfare changed, that originally you had a large army of soldiers, and now that you could deal out death and destruction without even being there, just mine a field or around the fortification and would be part of the defense of keeping back the enemy line without even having to go face-to-face with the bayonet against them. Why do you consider Gabriel Reigns to be an unsung father of coastal defense? Because he developed an important part of it that really hasn't been recognized. Yeah, there's only one biography that I know on Gabriel Reigns, although it's a very good one, covers the Civil War, so there hasn't really been much written on him. Some of what may have given the Army pause was the price of these weapons. In addition, mines, in this case, were not the only thing that the Army or the Navy were seeking to procure. There were competing interests. Right. Mines are defensive. At the end of the Civil War, they were developing huge cannons. There was some a few 20-inch Rodman shells and 20 inches. Of course, the diameter of the projectile that they shoot out would weigh a couple thousand pounds. So everybody was looking at big guns at that point, and not so much the mines. And, you know, I guess it's just what's ever in fashion at the time. I think that would be part of it because the Civil War showed that the Confederate was getting outnumbered and had to turn to other means because for many of the battles the Confederacy suffered high casualties. They couldn't replace the men that they were losing and so had to turn to other technologies and other means to defend Richmond and uh, Mobile and and some of the other places that were being put under siege by the Union. The trite expression is, nothing succeeds like success, but you don't get a chance to succeed with some munitions until you can demonstrate them on the battlefield. Was that a key for how the Reigns mind ended up being a part of coastal defense? Best thing to do for any experimental device is to see it in action because a lot of people used to the old technology won't accept the new technology until they actually see it in use. Once again, Chris Kimball, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Thank you. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.